A few quick notes before today's episode. If you enjoy the podcast, please rate it on iTunes or other platforms where you listen. This is a huge part of helping us grow and it's much appreciated. This podcast is produced by Authentic Form and Function. We're a design and technology studio working in the real estate space. We help developers and architects innovate their work with unique brands, websites, and digital tools. Last year, we launched Amplify, a digital real estate marketing platform that combines high-touch custom design with out-of-the-box real estate marketing technology. Find out more at AuthenticFF.com Amplify. Finally, we want to hear from you. Email your feedback and ideas, as well as who else you should speak with, to podcast at AuthenticFF.com. Part of this is that you sort of learn what people are interested in hearing about with traveling. And I think it's an interesting genesis for the work that I'm doing at Next City because I started to realize that one of the foundations of what Fromers was about is that money separates you from authenticity when you're traveling. On this episode, I'm speaking with Kelly Regan, editorial director at Next City. Kelly's been working for two decades in magazines, books, and digital publishing, overseeing content creation for outlets such as Google and the Firmers Travel Guides. She's a longtime freelance editor and writer, specializing in science, travel, educational publishing, and dream interpretation. She's also the author of the book Field Guide to Dreams, which was published by Quirk Books. In her current role, she manages content development, hosts webinars, and commissions long-form journalism at Next City, a nonprofit news organization. Next City covers issues in urbanism through the lens of equity to highlight ways that cities are dismantling institutional and legacy systems of oppression to create a level playing field that makes life better and more sustainable for all urban residents. Beats range from transportation to housing, to tech, culture, climate change, and equitable economic development. Next City's premier event is the Vanguard Conference, an annual gathering of rising urban innovators who work across disciplines to make change in cities. Each Vanguard cohort includes policymakers and politicians, architects and urban planners, artists and media makers, all of whom are selected through a competitive application process. We'll talk more about the Vanguard program and the opportunity to submit your own host city application later in the podcast. I'm your host, Chris Arnold. Let's jump right in. Kelly, thanks so much for joining me today. Thanks. Thanks for having me, Chris. So kicking things off, you may or may not know this, I really like to ask about where you came from as a child. And you would actually say you're not really from anywhere. So so tell us about that. Sure. Yeah. Well, you know, that's a common question, right? When you're um, meeting someone for the first time, you say, like, where are you from? And my standard answer is not from anywhere. Because although both of my parents are from New Jersey, like kind of in and around Newark, New Jersey originally, and, and my three brothers and I were born there, by the time I came around, I was the youngest. My dad sort of ended up having this nomadic job where he took a lot of short-term contract work and moved around quite a lot. So, you know, I had an experience where my K through 12 education, I went to eight different schools by the time I had graduated high school. So I think like many times, especially in my younger years, it was like one year in a place and then moving to another place. And what my dad did was he was a consultant for the textiles industry. And so his specialty was bankruptcy reorganizations. And so a bank would hire him if a company had gone into chapter 11. 
and he would go and try to find a way to, you know, reconfigure the business to make it profitable. And then, you know, those were short-term things. And then he would be on to the next place. So we moved around a lot, especially in my early years. And I think that not surprisingly, it gave me a great curiosity about the world because we had exposure to so many different types of places. So we didn't live internationally, really. Um, Mostly we moved around the U.S., but when I was four, a very formative experience for me was that we moved to Puerto Rico. And my dad was working for the government, helping them to establish kind of a textiles infrastructure on the island. And we lived there for four years in various places. And it was just a really magical time. I look back on it and I think, you know, the area where we lived was on the east coast of the island. It was a little bit rural. The school that I went to was a warehouse that was basically in the middle of a field. And it was K through eight school, and there were 35 students in the school. (laughs) You know, for me, it was kind of normal that at recess you'd go outside and climb a mango tree, and that my second year there, I was the only kid in the second grade. So they just put me in third. (laughs) So it just, you know, like, didn't every kid go a couple days without water and like, get cooking water out of the bathtub or, you know, didn't your dad shave in the ocean when he had to go to a meeting? Um, So it was a lovely experience. Since then, I have several very close friends who I met later in my life who are from Puerto Rico. And so it's, it's been a good way to perpetuate that connection for me. Yeah. So we moved around quite a bit. Another, my dad also had taken a one-year job in Haiti at the time we were living in Miami. And my mom took me out of school a little bit early. At that point, my brothers had already finished their high school educations. And my mom took me out of school a couple of months early so that we could go down and live with him in a little apartment in Port-au-Prince. And that was also a really amazing experience. I mean, it was It was the end of the kind of the end years of the baby duck Duvalier regime. And so it was a bit grim in terms of what people were going through there um, and the oppression they were dealing with. But it's another experience that I look back on fondly because it just was so eye-opening in terms of unlike anything I had experienced before. Yeah. And and so did you continue to move around after those, you know, elementary school years? Did you sort of bop around or did you end up anywhere? We did. We did. I mean, so up until junior high school, you know, we moved to Minneapolis. My dad got a job, which I find I'm I'm so continually tickled by the fact that my dad got this job a long time ago working for Munsingware, which of course is now very much a hipster brand. It's the clothing line, the penguin logos on it. But back then it was very much like a senior citizens golf shirt brand, you know? And so um, I often think my dad passed away more than 10 years ago now, but I often think how much he would have appreciated the fact that it has enjoyed this kind of hipster comeback. And I have a picture of myself in Covent Garden in London in front of this Munsingware flagship store with this giant neon penguin in the window. It's pretty great. So we were in Minneapolis for six years. And so I feel like I had that experience of being kind of settled for my high school years and kind of, you know, traveling through 
the latter part of my education with the same group of kids. But it was funny that I think, you know, as I finished school, so many kids were thinking of staying pretty close to home to go to school. And I was just like, for me, it was like, the world was wide open. I could go anywhere, you know? And I think that's the gift that this gave me, this experience gave me is just kind of being open to change and being flexible and, you know, not taking where you are at any one point for granted and, you know, being willing to try new things. And so... And so I think the writing's probably on the wall here, but where did you end up going for school after Minneapolis High School? I started out at Emory University in Atlanta because my parents had had this plan to kind of move down south. And they, unlike me, they didn't want me too far away. Um, and I was there for two years and it just wasn't, um, it wasn't the right fit for me. And so I transferred after two years to Georgetown University in DC and I graduated from there. And that was a great decision on my part, if I do say so myself or my 19 year old self, because I wanted to be, I knew at that point I wanted to be a journalist. And I think being in the mix in Washington, DC was a great place for someone who's trying to learn about the world and learn at the same time about journalism. I actually got an internship when I first moved to Washington at the Washington Monthly Magazine, which is still alive and kicking. It's a like Next City. It's a nonprofit news organization. They're mostly a political news magazine. But I started out as an intern and that transitioned into a part-time job that actually I was working about 20 hours a week to support my living expenses while I was in school. And so how long did you work at that internship? Was it sort of kind of like the stepping stone into the next phase of your career? Was there something else in the in the works? It was an unpaid internship that lasted like for the first semester that I was at school. And then, you know, for the year and a half after that, I worked part-time as like the newsstand liaison. And so I, I would physically deliver the magazines. It was such a low budget operation that I would get on the Metro and I would bring the magazines each month to the bookstores all around DC that carried them. So no, I mean, I think what happened was I graduated and then I decided that I needed to take a little time as most people do. I had always planned on going to graduate school, but I just was a little burned out on studying. And so I just wanted to take some time off. And so I worked two jobs for four or five months to save up some money. And then I bought a ticket to London that stopped over in Paris for several days to visit a friend who was living there. And I brought two months of living expenses and I had a let's go guide and I had a whole lot of books. I just planned to look for a job and find a place to live. And if it didn't work out, then I had a return ticket that would bring me home and I would have had a two month adventure. Um, I ran up against that deadline pretty much, but uh, didn't have a whole lot of luck. But at the very end, I was walking past a newsstand in this kind of serendipitous way. And I saw a copy of USA Today International on the newsstand. And I thought, huh, I didn't know USA Today had an international edition. And it turns out their offices were in London. So I just called them up on a payphone, which will tell you the time frame we're talking about here. And I asked if, you know, they had any openings. And the woman who answered the phone said to me, she laughed and she said, I was just about to place a classified ad for some part-time help. And I ended up getting a job there and I was selling little tiny classified ads in the front 
of the paper that were for ticket brokers and theaters and nightclubs, like all kinds of entertainment venues. And I think I probably, when we tallied it up at the end, like during my stint there, I must have called like 1,500 places in the UK and the Netherlands and France. And I got four ads. The ROI (laughs) on that job was not the greatest for USA Today International. They considered it a smashing success. So, which, or maybe they were just humoring me, like, I'm not really sure. But anyway, it subsidized my living when I was there. And I stayed there for, I worked there for seven months. I got paid out of petty cash every Friday, kept my money in a little, you know, metal tin in my room. And, um, the less said about the legality of my working arrangement, the better. And I, you know, rented a room in a, in an old Victorian boarding house in South Kensington. And it was really an amazing time. I met a lot of great people. I traveled on the weekends. I did all the things that I had gone overseas to do. How long did you stay overseas after you said you spent seven or eight months there? But does that mean that you left right after that? Or did you stay and stick around and continue traveling? I wish I had been able to do that, but I had already enrolled at Columbia Journalism School that fall. And so I was working up against deadline. I mean, I had school started over Labor Day weekend and I got back from London at the beginning of August. (laughs) So um, I stayed kind of as long as I possibly could. But then I really had to sort of find a place to live in New York and, you know, get ready for that next phase of my life. And I can't have too many regrets about making that decision because um, it was my year at Columbia where I met my husband. So I think like if I had delayed my admission by a year, another year, then I might not have, you know, had that opportunity. So... So you went to Columbia University, you got a master's in journalism, and that in and of itself is impressive after the stint in London overseas. And then you you came back, you went to school, and then what? I'm, I'm assuming we're, we're kind of pivoting now into early career, but what were your earliest experiences like? Sure. Yeah, I think that I really had no plan after school. <laughs> I was having a great time in school and a great time focusing on my writing and about the kind of ethics and the passion of covering stories that I thought needed to be told, but I was not really too focused on like what came next. And so I kind of fell ass backward, if you will, into a job at the daily newspaper where my parents lived, which was the Greenville News in Greenville, South Carolina. And I was a copy editor working the night shift. So I worked from four till one in the morning and it was great experience, but not terribly challenging. And I got the bug to travel. And so my plan had been to work there for a year and quit and then travel around Europe again. And I took a second job during the day again to save money so that I could do this. And while I was at the second job, I stumbled across a bunch of travel magazines and I had this very like incidental thought like, oh, you know, it might be really cool to work at a travel magazine. And so I wrote to all of the travel magazines and like a cold letter with my resume. And I got turned down by one. I got ignored by the other. And then the third one was Travel Holiday, which is no longer in business. But the day that I quit my job because I had planned to go traveling, 
the woman from the executive editor from Travel Holiday called me and said, we have this job opening. We can't fly you up to New York, but if you happen to be in New York, you know, feel free to come in for an interview. And so it just so happened that that weekend I was going to visit my roommate, my old college roommate in DC. And so I stayed on and then I took the train up to New York and I interviewed and I got the job. And so instead of traveling, I went to work for a travel magazine. So those four years until the magazine, it was owned by Reader's Digest. And then Reader's Digest sold the magazine to Hachette. Everyone got fired. It was a kind of a familiar story in the magazine world. And I kind of leapfrogged right from there to working for the Fromer's Travel Guide. And I started out editing travel guides. And then after a few years, I was promoted and I became the editorial director, which meant that I oversaw their publishing program and I launched new guidebook series. And then there was a large team because we published anywhere from like 90 to 120 books every year. So it was a a relatively large operation. So I had were from like eight to 15 editors at any one point. And let's pause for a second because this is this is actually a big deal. You, you slid right into that really, really nicely, I noticed. But you were in New York City, you worked for four years with Travel Holiday, and then you transitioned to the following Travel Guides business. But it wasn't just like you were doing you know, average work. You were really leading a lot of the editing and, and the, the directing there. And to your point, averaged about 100 titles per year. That's a big deal. Yeah. I mean, you know, you sort of like when you're in the travel business, it feels like you learn a lot about places you've never been. (laughs) And I think that, you know, you're reading about all these great places that other people are traveling to and then writing about. And so number one, it was, uh, it's great for me on uh, trivia nights. And I've actually leveraged this quite well because I have little known fun fact. I've been a contestant on who wants to be a millionaire and Jeopardy. And, but I think at the other part of this is that you sort of learn what people are interested in hearing about with traveling. And I think it's an interesting genesis for the work that I'm doing at Next City because I started to realize that one of the foundations of what Fromers was about is that money separates you from authenticity when you're traveling. So the more money you have, you're staying in a fancy hotel where everyone speaks English and, you know, you're reading the menu that's translated into English and you never really have to step outside of your bubble. And Arthur Fromer was pretty revolutionary in that he talked about back in the 50s and post-war Europe, how it was actually better to stay in someone's home or in a local pension where nobody speaks English and to go to the places where the locals are eating and to basically experience a city the way a resident does, that you really begin to appreciate the culture and understand the place that you're visiting. And that informed a lot of the work that we did. I would say probably all of the work we did at Fromers. But it's also very interesting to think about this work as place-based and that it's a place, you know, it's experiencing a place as a resident and not so much as a visitor. So yeah, and I did, I mean, and I was joking that, you know, people, other people did the traveling and then I read about it, but I also did get to take some amazing trips during my time at Fromers. You know, I, I went skiing in Switzerland and Italy. I went to Michoacan State in Mexico during the Day of the Dead celebrations on a 
personal trip, I went to Turkey for two weeks to celebrate my 30th birthday and traveled by myself. And that was really an unforgettable trip. I've been wanting to go back ever since. So it was really great. And I think, you know, the travel guide business changed because of the internet. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, I was going to say something happened around 2012. Yeah, you know, the the internet really, the, the rise of user-generated content meant that people didn't necessarily value expertise in travel as they did sort of crowdsourcing and kind of letting opinions, popular opinions rise to the top. And I think that that hurt travel guides in general, but travel content was still really, there was still a voracious appetite for that. And so in 2012, Fromers was purchased by Google. And in a very unusual move, when typically the editorial teams are always disbanded during a purchase, the entire editorial team, the print editorial team migrated over to Google with the purchase. And so it was really like Alice falling down the rabbit hole. You sort of show up there and then there's, you know, napping pods and snacks everywhere and conference rooms that look like you know, where the sofas are shaped like bathtubs and it looks like a New York City apartment building. And it was quite, it was quite the experience. It was quite the change. But I think that what was also super interesting is that we sort of went from creating these like very large scale projects where each project itself was quite large to developing, you know, what we ended up calling micro content, right? So I would commission, you know, five people to write an 800 page guide to Italy. And now they're telling me, I think that you can describe Italy in 75 words because nobody wants to scroll more than that on their phone. (laughs) What's interesting is that because or out of that, you were on the forefront of helping launch what became Google's travel site, travel.google.com, or I think maybe it's google.com slash travel these days. But I mean, that was, you were a part of that team, which is, you know, I think it comes with the good and the bad to your point about having to say 800 page guidebook, let's make this 75 words to get someone interested. Yeah. And I think that the idea was that Google for so long had been a wayfinding like place, like a place where people would travel through to go somewhere else. And I think they just, around the time that we were acquired, the decision was made that it should be a place like, why not keep people within the universe? Right. And the team that I worked with was really instrumental in that, in creating kind of a library of content both on Google Maps, if you, you know, search for restaurants, if you do the kind of Google Explore engine now and you search for restaurants on the map, you see these little headlines that are on each map that's that are on each restaurant that summarizes what they serve. And and our team created that. You know, the people that I work with helped to launch that. I wasn't directly involved, but but we were all part of that initiative. And then again, yeah, so Google purchased this flight search engine and then they wanted travel content to wrap around it. And so I kind of directed the team that prototyped all of the content that goes on there and then launched it. So it's interesting, like it became like, let's take one book and make it 800 pages all about Italy too. How fast can you write 75 word descriptions of 10,000 destinations? It kind of inverted the scale of what we were trying to do. 
So after about three years or so, you decided to take a step back, kind of take a break, reset. I know that you were in the process of adopting your second child and you're sort of just in this mindset of, let me take a couple breaths, take some time off with my family. You left what became Google Travel. You're raising a family. And I believe at this point in time, you actually switched to freelance work for a bit. How was that transition? Sure. I mean, I think that it just made sense. I had never taken any significant time off of full-time work since I had started working um, after graduate school. And so it felt like a good time to just press pause. We were waiting to be placed with a baby. And, you know, we did get after six months after I stopped working, we got placed with the baby, which was amazing. And she's three and a half now and she's awesome. But at the same time I was freelancing, I was trying to like dip my toes in a lot of different waters to see what was a good fit. And it really did feel like a natural pivot to kind of dig into urbanism. As I said, I mean, all of my work experience up until that point had been grounded in places, right? And so really just talking about places and experiencing them as somebody who lives there. And really the big break that I had, I guess you'd say, is um, that I was working with Maureen Clark, who's the vice president of communications for the Lincoln Institute of Land Policy. And Maureen and I have worked together at multiple junctures throughout our careers. So we were colleagues at Fromers, you know, we worked together at Travel Holidays. So we have a long-standing working relationship. And the Lincoln Institute is a is a foundation that's based in Cambridge, Massachusetts. And they they work on creative approaches of using land to solve economic, social, and environmental issues like climate change mitigation, property tax reform, inclusionary zoning, water rights, you know, that kind of stuff. So I was helping edit the content on their website in advance of a site relaunch. And it was Maureen who told me, you know, you really need to get in touch with the folks at Next City. Um, they're wonderful people and they do great work and I think you would love them. And so she kind of affected this introduction to my predecessor, Ariella Cohen. And when Ariella left, this opening came up for editorial director and I kind of threw my hat in and there you go. That was a little over two years ago. So I love it. Yeah. Tell us why you were so intrigued with Next City and the work that they were doing and I would love to dig into this because obviously this is a meat of what you're doing today and there's a lot of great stuff to cover. I think that coincidentally, you know, this shift that I made um, coincided with, you know, what you could call a significant change in the American political landscape, right? That happened with the 2016 election. I think you can argue that maybe it wasn't so much a shift as a reveal of the American landscape, you know. Um, but for me, I think this has been part of my ongoing, like, evolution of consciousness in my personal life and in my professional life, you know, and, and I feel like every day that I come to work at Next City, it puts me on notice and it kind of pushes me to stand up and advocate for the kind of world that I want to live in. A pretty big tenant of what Next City does is sort of don't report on what's going wrong in cities, report on what's going right, like find the people who are making a difference and elevate those stories so that you can try to spread change. And I think the fact that Next City grounds its work so firmly in the equity space means a lot to me personally, because my family is multiracial and my husband and I are having these conversations with our kids every day. You know, they're studying Philadelphia's colonial history. Well, you know, okay, great. Are you also talking about the genocide and displacement of the native populations that lived here, the Lenape tribes? 
how do you venerate the founding fathers without acknowledging the kind of institutional white supremacy that's baked into the constitution? You know, once you know this stuff, you can't unknow it. And I think that next city is a vehicle for understanding just how pernicious these tentacles of inequity get into every aspect of urban life. There's redlining, you know, redlining was an institutional practice that was decades long in depriving people of color of owning a home, which was the primary, which is the primary driver of generational wealth. It's incredibly high rates of incarceration. You know, the the U.S. has 5% of the world's population, but 25% of the world's incarcerated population. So I think that it's a very meaningful place that I'm in where in the work that I do at Next City, because I want to seek out those stories, the stories where people are making things better. Obviously, you're clearly connected to the mission and the objectives of Next City. And, and I want to actually ask you that if you were in an elevator with someone 30, for, for 30 seconds or 60 seconds, actually something you, that you just said resonated with me and it, and it had to do with not talking about what's going wrong, but what's going right with our cities. So I and probably a lot of listeners know of Next City as you know an online publication, a, a website. But beyond that, what would be your pitch or your explanation about what Next City does? What's that mission statement? Sure. I mean, I think, you know, Next City is, we started almost 16 years ago now, and it started as a print magazine. And the three people who started it were not journalists, you know, but they were people who cared about cities and they were people who did exactly that. They said, you know, we don't, we're sick of hearing about cities as the source of the world's problems. Like we want to talk about cities as the source of the world's solutions. So what we do is, you know, there's a a growing movement in journalism called solutions journalism, which is again, to switch the lens and to focus on what's working. And if it's not working, how can it be fixed? And so what we like to say is we elevate solutions that are happening on a small scale in one city. And the idea is by amplifying that story, it might inspire someone to take that idea from that city to the next city, right? So the readership that we have is professional folks who work in urbanist fields, and it spans so many different sectors from architecture to transportation to city planning to housing to landscape architecture to, you know, kind of culture bearers and creative placemakers to people who work in environmental sustainability and waste management. So it's really speaking to all of those audiences with this message of, you know, there are ways to affect change. And at a time when national governments around the world are dialing back their promises in terms of what they're willing to do for the people who live in their countries. I think, you know, cities are realizing that they have to take the lead, that they have to be on the forefront of making life more sustainable and more equitable, more inclusive to create opportunities. And I think you see that in so many different areas, you know, cities, you know, saying that they're going to, you know, on a city by city basis, join the Paris Accords, right? Um, Join the Paris Climate Accords, Um, you know, sanctuary cities. I think, you know, you're seeing a lot of those situations where cities are trying to solve things for themselves. When people pitch us stories, like what I say is the best stories that we've run start with this question, what if? 
What if we tried to solve a long-standing problem in a new way? And then you kind of take it from there. Hey listeners, just a quick reminder that today's episode is brought to you by our firm, Authentic Form and Function. I wanted to let you know about an internal research project we recently completed, where we analyzed the digital strategy of over 75 commercial real estate projects across multiple asset and project classes. We distilled this research into an ebook called The Real Estate Website Blueprint, which you can download for free on our website at authenticff.com blueprint. In it, we provide several strategies and tactics you can use on your next project to better position in the market, increase project awareness, and accelerate leasing. To download the ebook, be sure to visit authenticff.com slash blueprint. Do you have a maybe a story or two that really resonates with you that you could show us as an example as listeners to kind of really connect with that maybe things can be different and, and what if theme? Sure. I mean, I think that, you know, one of the stories we reported last year that our housing reporter, Jared Bray, brought to us was about a program in Syracuse that was intended to lower eviction rates. You know, so the question was, you know, how can we do this? Because the idea is it's a train that kind of leaves the station. And once you start getting the letters, once you start getting served notices, once you end up in housing court, you're already so far along the process that it's really hard to derail that train, right? And a lot of cities are doing this thing of right to counsel so that people in eviction court will have legal representation, which is super helpful. But Syracuse, the Syracuse Housing Authority had this idea, like, what if we intervened further upstream? What if we met with people before things got to a crisis point? And if they started missing their rents, we had caseworkers going and talking to them and finding out what's going on. You know, why is this happening? What kind of help do you need? And by doing that level of intervention at the beginning of the process, they were able to catch people who might need something relatively simple like assistance with transit or maybe help enrolling in Medicaid or SNAP benefits or something like that. And by doing that, by taking those relatively smaller scale interventions early in the process. In the very first year of this program, eviction rates dropped by 75%, which is astonishing. And not only did it did the eviction rate stop and it kept people in their homes by that much, but it also saved the housing authority $116,000 during that period. And that those savings came from, you know, avoiding legal costs and also preventing the lost rents. So it's not just a great solution for the families who were at risk. It was also just a really smart business decision. And and that's the the kind of perfect example of like, this is what we like to do. We like to tell people about this story. And then maybe another city will say, oh, that's something that we should try. Yeah, I love that. That's a perfect example and, and obviously clearly illustrates the what if example. I have a little bit of a teaser note on my end, but is there another story that you wanted to tell before we move on? 
Yeah, sure. Just very quickly, I'll say that, you know, a story that meant a lot to me that we published last year was local to Philadelphia. And it was about this lactation program that was embedded in a local jail. So it's Riverside Correctional Facility in Philadelphia. And it's a nonprofit um, called the Maternity Care Coalition. And they're embedded in the jail to work with incarcerated women who have given birth either in prison or shortly before entering prison. And what it does is it encourages them to pump their breast milk while they're incarcerated. And then the nonprofit handles the freezing and the storage and the delivery of the breast milk outside the jail to the newborn babies who are being raised by family members or foster parents while these women are incarcerated. There's a very sad undertone to the story because so many of the women who are in jail on these kind of shorter term sentences are in jail because they can't make bail. And cash bail, you know, perfidy of cash bail is is a story that's been reported quite a lot. And, and something that we try to pay attention to is, you know, sort of what are alternatives to cash bail? Because you don't want people to say like, oh, well, I'm in jail because I can't make bail. It messes up their job their housing, so many different things. But I think that what's inspiring about this story is that this program is not just interested in helping women pump their breast milk. They're providing parenting classes inside the jail, and they're working with these women to prepare them for life on the outside once they're released. So helping to set them up with services and helping to you know, make sure that they have the support that they need once they are you know, returning citizens into their community. And so we had our writer and our photographer go to the jail and talk to these women and take their photos. And the photos are breathtakingly beautiful. And the story in that respect, I think, is extremely inspiring as a way to sort of humanize this prison industrial complex that that has so many inequities baked into it, foremost among them being the cash bail process. And so that these women are able to maintain this connection with their newborn child and then also prepare themselves for when they are released. It's a great story. With these themes of equity in mind, I want to make sure that we don't miss out on talking about the Vanguard program that Next City puts on or holds or is a part of running. And I think most people would agree that this program is really important for a variety of reasons. But for those listeners that don't know what it is, can you explain that to them and kind of where it came from and what it's doing today? Sure. I think Next City has always tried to advance its mission through both journalism and events. We're now entering our 11th year of doing these Vanguard conferences. And what they do is that the thinking is that just as Next City's journalism brings these stories to professionals who work across many different sectors and cities and tells these success stories of how people affect change, Vanguard as an event will convene the same kinds of thought leaders to bring them all together, to break down silos, kind of occupational silos, and get people talking and brainstorming about how to affect change. And so you have an application process. We pick 40 or so people every time we do a conference. We have had, you know, upwards of 500 applications for 40 spots. So it's a very popular program. And in that way, we will designate, you know, designers and artists and planners and architects and journalists and lawyers 
and affordable housing developers and bring them all together to a host city that is likely experiencing some challenges that can benefit from this thought leadership, um, this kind of convening of thought leadership. So, you know, over the years, we've been to Houston, we've done conferences in Chattanooga, New Orleans, and Cleveland. Last year, we did two conferences, which is a little unusual, but we did a regional one in Newark, New Jersey, that was for kind of people in the tri-state area. And then we did our kind of national international conference in Sacramento later in the year. These are all people who are passionate about working toward equitable change. And it's a very intense, immersive three or four days of panel discussions and we do bike tours and walking tours and cultural immersion. And, you know, we don't shy away from difficult conversations about where cities have been and where they still need to go and where they're falling short. But I always tell people who come to the conference, like, show up for breakfast in the morning with everything that you're going to need for the day because you're not coming back to your hotel (laughs) until probably 10 o'clock at night. And why is this important? Someone might say, hey, that's great. You're bringing everyone together, bright minds, people that maybe think alike and maybe people that think differently and you're kind of mixing it up. But the big question is like, why does this matter or why is it important? And and how would you address that? Yeah, I mean, I think we have seen, you know, now that we have a cohort of alumni that is numbers more than 500 people, right? These people are working together now across years, you know, so someone, you know, who was a vanguard last year could be working with someone who is a vanguard from, you know, 2007, and they're getting together to work on projects and, again, to to kind of make change in their cities. They're bringing the conference to their cities to try and leverage that thought leadership. And I think that what makes it such a critical issue is that we have to get people acting, not just talking, but taking action. The UN released a report in 2018 saying that by the year 2050, more than 68% of the world's population will live in cities. More than two-thirds of the world's population will be living in cities. And even right now, take 2020, cities account for nearly 80% of all greenhouse gas emissions on the planet. This is where the problems are, (laughs) you know, but this is also where the solutions are. I think we are going to have to solve the problems in cities first. It's urgent that we do that in order to solve these problems overall. So, you know, the clock is ticking. And, you know, as we saw from the UN convening last fall, the cities are not very far along. Countries are not very far along in fulfilling these roughly hashed out goals in the Paris Climate Agreement. They really have to get moving. And and this is our contribution to the conversation. Quick plug here for the Vanguard program. A couple of your own alumni have actually been on the podcast before. We had Jay Wall on early on, first season. Um, And then recently, within the last uh, season, we had Ujiji Davis on. So if you're interested in learning more about the Vanguards, we've actually had a couple on. So find their podcast and and listen to them as well. They're great people and and they have great stories to tell and, and they're doing amazing work. And you can find out more about the program just overall at nickcity.com slash Vanguard. Absolutely. And we will be sure to link all important show notes um, with all the links for the podcast. You can find that online. So Kelly, as we begin to wrap up, I'm curious about another question that's kind of come to mind. And that is, what are the storylines that you feel like give you the most hope 
looking forward? I mean, we see so much negativity in the news, but I'm curious from someone who's on the front lines, you know, what are you hopeful for? What's great about my job is that every day I get hopeful (laughs) because I hear about another thing and I think, oh, that's so cool. I'm so glad that this is happening. But I think, you know, two things that I've seen unfold over the last few years that I think are moving in the right direction are one, a kind of increased pace of record expungements for people who are serving time for marijuana convictions. You know, the the prison industrial complex is such a stain on this democracy. And I think that the fact that tech companies are trying to get into the process and and the city governments are taking the charge. San Francisco was the first with Code for America to partner with Code for America on an app that's called Clear My Record. And what it does is it kind of trolls through all of the criminal records that the city has, and it just automatically vacates the convictions um, that meet the criteria, the kind of marijuana conviction criteria. So, you know, that's really important for it to be happening because of the block the box initiatives, you know, making sure that people on employment applications and housing applications don't have to check a box to say whether they've been convicted of a crime. It opens up opportunity for people. But I think the thing that we're watching, the kind of flip side of that is that as marijuana becomes legal across the many states, the economics and the capitalist profit motive becomes, you know, take center stage. And we want to make sure, you know, we're really following the storyline of our people of color who were disproportionately sentenced and convicted and stopped for marijuana convictions throughout the last few decades. Um, Are those people being given the right opportunity? Are they having access to build that wealth through a business that they have been involved in? And they have also been penalized for being involved in. And so I think it's very encouraging that people, that they're finding these ways to kind of, you know, wipe the record clean. But there's other things that need to happen, I think, for real equity to be in this process. Another thing is there's a growing movement to lower the voting age to 16, which I think is super interesting. We're doing some reporting on this right now. We're planning some stories that we're going to be running in conjunction with the Solutions Journalism Network later in the spring. We're planning an ebook a little bit later in the summer about it. Um, But the early reporting that we've done indicates that several communities have already done this on the local level for local elections. And most of them are in for no particular reason, but most of them are in the kind of suburbs of D.C. in communities in Maryland. But I think the early findings are that it um, increases um, civic engagement by quite a lot. And actually, voter turnout for young people from 16 to 19 can be three and four times greater than that for people who are like 20 to 30. And I think that's so encouraging. It means that young people want to be engaged. And I think when you hear the arguments against it, a lot of the arguments that people are using against it, like, oh, they don't know enough or they don't, they're like, what's in it for them. There are a lot of the arguments that were used in the 70s when the low, when the voting age was lowered to 18 from 21. And I think they're kind of similarly absurd. You know, people who are 16 have jobs, they pay taxes, they pay into social security. You know, they have the same investments that older folks do. And in many ways, you could say that they're probably 
more civically engaged because they're actually living in the communities. They're not commuting outside their communities to go to work. They're staying in their communities to go to school. They have a lot of opinions about, for example, school board elections. And I'm really interested to kind of dig into that further and and see what comes of it. Kelly, we have a a tradition around here, and that is to ask this final question. It's one of my favorite questions. You're such a smart person. You bring a lot of value to this podcast. So thank you again for joining me today. Who else in your mind do you feel like we as a listener should be paying attention to that's doing groundbreaking or inspiring work out there? Yeah. I mean, there are just so many people whose work that I could wax on and on about. Um, But I think there's two things that I'd like to point out. And the first is to mention the work that's being done by Brian Lee Jr. and Sue Mobley. And they are the co-founders of Colocate Design in New Orleans. And Brian is actually a vanguard um, Um, by the way. So what they do is they advocate for a movement that they call design justice, which is to acknowledge that the design world has really fallen short in working towards equity. And their mission is then to intentionally organize, advocate, and design spaces that reflect that equity, whether it's racial equity, social equity, cultural equity. And one expression of this was through something they did called the Paper Monuments Project. And it was a public art and a public history project that lasted for two years, 2017 to 2019. And it started at a time when New Orleans was in the process of removing four Confederate statues from public display. And you know, there was a a lot of cultural, you know, kind of hot cultural commentary about that at the time. But what this project did, what the Paper Monuments Project did was it invited residents to imagine new monuments to the city. And those monuments would, would possibly reveal an untold history where it would center the people who have been erased from the official accounts and commemorations, as many in New Orleans so often felt when seeing these statues of Stonewall Jackson or these other generals. So what they did was they created posters and public installations to share the stories that the community contributed and to spread the word about the project. They wanted people to come to them from the community and say, what would your monuments be to New Orleans? So over two years, they collected more than 1,100 proposals which is an astonishing figure, you know. And there are other groups in other cities that do similar work. Like in Philly, we have the Monument Lab, and there's a a group called Untold RVA in Richmond. What I really appreciate about what Brian and Sue have been engaged with is that they're not just calling out the design world for not stepping up. You know, they are committing to directly and positively addressing systemic and institutional issues of inequity in cities, but in a way that brings the community with them, that invites input and invites ownership. And what I love is that they call it, they called this process, they wanted to complicate and contest the existing narratives. And I just love that, you know, I'm all for complicating narratives. So, you know, you can check out their work at papermonuments.org. It's really a terrific project. 
There's one other person that I wanted to mention, and that's Jessica Norwood. And she runs this program called the Runway Project, which is based in Oakland. And what she's doing is closing the friends and family fundraising gap for entrepreneurs of color. And what that means in context is that, you know, the U.S. is a country where studies have shown that white median household wealth is about $142,000. But in black households, that median wealth is only $11,000. So that's a difference of $131,000 on average. And Latino households, the median wealth is only $13,000. So obviously the, the reasons for that are well-documented about redlining and racial covenants and you know homeownership as a primary driver of generational wealth, right? So many small entrepreneurs rely on their local family and friends network for seed funding to start a small business. So it's clear that within this framework, entrepreneurs of color don't have that same access to capital. So what's interesting is that she calls it the runway project because she identified that the problem is not with the entrepreneur him or herself, but with the infrastructure that supports them. If you're thinking in terms of aviation, the problem's not the pilot. They just don't have enough runway to take off. So what she's done is she's built a partnership with um, Self-Help Federal Credit Union and Impact Hub in Oakland to offer very advantageous loans to entrepreneurs of color to get them started. The initial payments are interest only so that they have the breathing room to really kind of build their business. They also offer trainings and technical assistance to these entrepreneurs through their affiliated Optima Business Bootcamp. And again, what's inspiring to me is that this is someone who saw a structural inequity, right? And she acknowledges this inequity. She clearly is not in favor of it, but instead of railing against it, she's offering an alternative and an opportunity for people to overcome those barriers. And I think that the fact that the Runway Project has, since we first reported on it, the Runway Project has now expanded into Boston and they're partnering with groups in Boston to do the same kind of program and over there. So this idea, it has legs and it's the support for it is growing. Kelly, wow. Thank you so much for, I would call it an education today. Thank you so much for your taking time out of your busy schedule to make this happen. There's only one more thing to do here, and that is to roll out the red carpet for you. So tell the world what you're up to and where they can find you online. Sure. Well, you know, please come check out our journalism at nextcity.org. And we publish a number of different newsletters that deliver our best stories straight to your inbox. So you can go to nextcity.org slash newsletters to subscribe. We also host pay what you wish webinars a few times a month. So in those one of my colleagues or myself will introduce a practitioner who's accomplished something. So they walk us through the project, sort of how I did it, you know, from how they got the idea to what the outcomes were or the obstacles that they encountered along the way. It's just another avenue that we have for spreading solutions. So um, I invite you to tune into those. We have an archive of them on our website that you can check out. So in terms of Vanguard, this year's Vanguard conference will be in Greensboro, North Carolina from May 11th through the 14th. So if you're in town, please come and see us. So we'll be announcing the new Greensboro class in early to mid-March, so stay tuned for that. But I also wanted to mention that there's an opportunity here for Vanguard, which is 
we've had a number of alumni who have attended the conference's vanguards and then have brought the conference later to their home city after seeing that the difference the conference makes with the host city. So if you live somewhere that you think would make a great vanguard host city, please get in touch with us. We can send you the RFP. We collect proposals. We'll be collecting proposals throughout this year to plan for next year's conference. So if you think your city is a great candidate, you know, please reach out because we would love to hear from you. But mostly, Chris, I just I just want to thank all the people who listen to the podcast and who are doing that important work of making change in cities. Because if it wasn't for your work, we wouldn't have these inspiring stories to tell. I'm just very appreciative that there are so many of you out there doing the work to make cities better for all of their residents. Absolutely. I 100% agree with you. And once again, I want to reiterate to listeners, we do have all of these amazing links in the show notes. So from Next City information to hosting the Vanguard program to learning about some of these projects that Kelly mentioned, please check out the show notes, do your research, educate yourself. It's a good thing. Kelly, once again, thank you so much for being on today. Well, thank you so much for having me, Chris. I really appreciate it. Transforming Cities is brought to you by Authentic Form and Function, the digital design and development team that just might be a perfect fit for your next urban project. If you're a new listener, you can follow along at authenticff.com slash transforming cities, or you can simply subscribe through your favorite apps, including iTunes, Spotify, or Stitcher. Thanks for joining us.